this morning. God, well, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your love, your, your grace to us. Jesus, thank you for speaking to our hearts this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you and lift you up. But we don't ever want to take that to granted that we get to come in here and we get to worship you freely. And again, Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would um, make the Word of God come alive to us. And that we would honor you and that we would help you to hear what you're saying to us in Jesus' name. Amen. This is somewhat a, um, a continuation from last week. We've been chatting along and we've been moving through the book of Colossians um, in this series called The Battle for Supremacy. And last week we were, we were in Colossians 3, again, where Paul was talking, talking about relationships specifically. We talked about marriage. Um, the way this book is written, again, Paul begins in Colossians 1 making a declaration of who Jesus is, um, somewhat even in a worship adoration of just declaring the truth of who Christ is. And then he moves into the, those practical things that he's saying, you need to get the, the, the foundation first is, is about who Jesus is and who uh, Jesus says he is. And so Paul says, that's kind of the first place we need to begin. If you want to build a foundation, we need to talk about the supremacy, the preeminence, the importance, the priority of Christ in our lives, in our home, in our marriage, in our children, in our job. Because as Colossians rolled on, he does tell us practically how to live. And he gives us some practical things on relationships. And last week we touched in on marriage, and we're going to go a little bit farther this week and next week, specifically on marriage. And again, um, I, I, I'm going to start in Colossians 1 in just a moment as this foundation passage um, to, to, uh, to unpack a little bit of where Paul is taking it practically. But what I want to give you today and next week are the 25 things that I've learned in 25 years of marriage. You ready for this? Because on May 19th, I celebrated 25 years wedding anniversary with my lovely wife. 25 years. Appreciate that golf clap, you guys. Um, it went by quick. It goes by fast. I mean, it really does. I mean, it is absolutely astounding how quickly time goes and how much we've done in our lives. And I think about we've lived in Montevideo longer than we've ever lived anywhere else in our lives. How's that for? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not even a Southerner anymore. I'm like a totally full-blown Minnesotan now. So, for sure, yeah, for sure. Um, which, which is funny because we, we, we talk to people in the South and they, they say, you know, you've got, you got a northern accent now. And I'm, and I'm like, I'll take that as a compliment. Um, which I say, you mean you can understand me. So, they don't like that joke too much. Um, and so, um, I, that, that's kind of what I want to unpack here a little bit. But uh, let's start out in this place of Colossians chapter 1. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything else was created, and He is supreme, first preeminent ruler, ultimate authority over all creation. And even for this week and next week, we could say He is supreme over marriage. 
over family. Because in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about our children. We're going to talk about work. Paul gets really practical with us. But he's supreme over marriage. For through him, God created marriage in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can't see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities, dancing work. Everything was created through him and for him. Marriage was created through him and for him. We're going to get into that in a moment. He existed for anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme, first preeminent. He's the ruler. He's the ultimate authority. He has the final say over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything, marriage included, family included. He's first in that. For God has told us to please to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. It's the good news in verse 20. And so today, I want to begin this kind of journey as we talk about marriage. Last week, you know, in Colossians 3, there's only two verses, really. It's uh, wives, submit to your husbands, husbands who love your wives, and don't treat them harshly. Um, Ephesians 5, Paul really unpacks a lot more um, about roles in marriage, and he deals with it a lot more specifically. But this idea of marriage, guys, and, and I'll talk about this um, when we kind of got this hot topic with the Supreme Court and all that ruling, I'm not going to read to the bad. If you want to do that, uh, you can call me and I'll give you my notes on that. But uh, God created marriage. It was His idea. It was the institution that He came up with. He created it. And if we believe uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, that Christ is supreme of all, and it begins there, is Christ supreme in my life, if he first is he preeminent, does he have the final authority? And so, is my life built on the foundation of that fact? Because if that is true, if I hold Christ to that place of truth, then he, I have to admit that he is preeminent in marriage. He came up with the idea, he thought of it, he created it, and so therefore we have to do it his way. So in the narrative of Scripture, obviously the first marriage that we have is Adam and Eve. God creates Adam, and he gives Adam a suitable or right helper, a helpmate that would come alongside. They are different, yet they complement. They are wired differently. They see things differently, yet they are intended to be complementary together. And so we've got to get out of our minds that God created human beings because he needed us or he was somewhat lonely. If you've ever thought that, that God created human beings because he was lonely, get that out of your mind. Um, God, God needs nothing, which again makes me love God more because he chose people. He chose to create people because he loved us. He didn't need us, but he wanted us. And so, in his declaration of man and woman, Adam and Eve, he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, and he will be joined to his wife, joined as, um, emotionally, spiritually, and so the two shall become one flesh, physically, and so you have God's blueprint of marriage, and God saw, and everything God created was good. That was his original intentions and blueprint for marriage. That was the first marriage. Now, it's interesting, this institution that God came up with, ultimately is pointing to a greater reality. 
And we're going to get to that in a moment. Because the narrative of Scripture, obviously, you have it's good, God's intentions, and then you have the tragedy of Genesis 3. Sin comes into the world. Adam and Eve, again, this whole system is the idea they remove God from the throne. They believe the lie of the enemy. The enemy calls God into question. Does God really mean what he said? God's holding out on you. Um, in other words, what, what, what the enemy is saying is you can do a better job at being God than God. And that was ultimately the lie of the enemy. You do a better You be God. You remove God from being supreme in your life. You be supreme. You be on the throne. You can do a better job calling the shots, making the rules, defining with this and that. And so they believe that lie, and we see the fracture of humanity and, and, and what came after that. But it's interesting that throughout the Old Testament, of course, we read the tragedy of Israel. You know, they're, they're, they're like this. They're in a roller coaster ride. They're obedient. They have their seasons where they're doing really well. And then they kind of do their own thing. Or a wicked king would rise to the throne and take the ship down. And uh, judges, they were kind of up and down. Um, and they were, you know, the, the Bible says they were doing what was right in their own eyes. In other words, the same lie that Adam and Eve were doing right as what, what is right in our own eyes. We will be our own God. This is the all. This is the, every single one of our battles t- today. It, it's the, this is the battle of every human heart in history. Is will you allow God to be God, or are you going to be God? So it's interesting, though, in this thing in marriage that even throughout history, and you see Israel rise and kind of fall, you see the prophets rise up, and there. God would use the prophets to speak to the people ultimately by saying, what, 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 I mean, what was the cry of the prophets? Come back to God, right? Because over and over, God would speak to the prophet. This was before Christ, and now we have the mediator of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit that, that, that convicts us and confronts us. We also have spiritual gifts, and we can have prophetic utterances. Ultimately, all of that is to call back to God. In the Old Testament, the prophets were there, and their cry to the people, when the people would disobey, is they would say, come back to God. Do it God's way. Come back to God. And in the context of the prophets, you see occasionally this idea of the picture of marriage that comes up. It happens in Ezekiel. It happens on Isaiah. And, I, and I'm pretty sure it happens in Jeremiah, where we are the people of Israel at the time. They were likened unto an unfaithful spouse. You know, you know what I'm talking about? They would just... God is, and we have the God is a jealous God. Again, don't get lost in the woods over. I didn't think it was, I, I, I thought it was bad to be jealous. Just, God is not like us, okay? Don't bring God down to a human level of reasoning. When it says God is jealous, this is not an unstable emotional jealousy that we're talking about. He wants the affection, He desires us. And He's jealous for our affection in our hearts because He created us for a relationship. And again, this whole idea of marriage points to a greater reality. But throughout even the prophets, the prophets would sometimes say, you've been like an unfaithful spouse to God. In other words, God is like your husband. He loves you. He has a plan for you. He has death for you. But you've been like a wandering, unfaithful spouse. Ezekiel, he gets very graphic with it. Even in minor prophets, Hosea. Know the story of Hosea? Guys, I would not want to be an Old Testament prophet. If you thought that that was a good job, whoa, read the prophets and then come talk to me. 
God says to Hosea, you're, you know, this prophet, he had this minor prophet, he says, here's what I want you to do. I'm, I'm trying to, I want to teach my people a lesson. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a prostitute. Now you would need to hear the audible voice of God several times. And then several more times before you would even think that that would be a good idea. But God is saying, I'm trying to teach them a spiritual lesson. So Hosea goes and marries Goma. Great name. Um, this prostitute, because he says, I want to teach my children is that they are like Gomer. And, and so, uh, Hosea takes her in, but then she, for after a while, she goes back to her ways. And then what happens is some time elapses, but Hosea and goes back and he gets her again. And he draws her and he brings her back to himself after she is completely unfaithful. She is living a horrid life. Hosea got to go back and get her again, redeem her again. Because God is saying, I'm trying to teach my people something about this idea of marriage. Marriage is a wonderful institution created by God, but it is a temporary institution that points to a greater reality. And God says, I'm like that. So I'm trying to teach my people a lesson. Although my people continue to run from me, my people continue to kind of do their own thing, my people continue to do what is right in their own eyes, they continue to remove me off the throne of their heart, and I will still, I'm still wanting to redeem them. And even in our sin, in our greatest rejection of God, while we were yet sinners, while we rejected Him, He was wooing us. While we were somewhat prostituting ourselves, you know, and, you know, don't get lost there. I'm not talking about actual, but just that we've rejected our bridegroom, King, and we have done our own thing, which is somewhat like prostituting ourselves. Jesus is still saying, "I want to redeem you. I want to clean you up. I want you to take you in to be with me again because I love you." And so, even in the Old Testament, we see the prophets, and there was this declaration that pointed. The relation, the, the, the point back to the idea that God is a God of relationship like a husband and a wife. Then Jesus comes onto the scene. The great Redeemer. One of His names is the Bridegroom. That is amazing to me because, again, it's pointing to the greater reality. This idea of marriage points to a greater reality of Jesus being bridegroom and the church is his bride. And he lays down his life for us. And he redeems us. And he redeems us. And when we reject him, he longs that he draws us back. And when we repent, he brings us back in. Isn't that beautiful? And so when we read about marriage, this idea of marriage, We need to see the greater work that is going on, the greater reality. And so I say that because um, ultimately, again, this idea that this institution marriage points us to something greater. Even an earthly husband and wife, as wonderful as it is, it, it should be pointing us to a greater reality and not just turning in on itself for each other. And ultimately, we see at the end of the story, Revelation, which is the great bridegroom, and it says, you know, um, the Father says, go get your bride. And so that this whole idea of the 
um, of, the, of when the trumpet sounds and Christ comes to take us to himself. But, you know, the indication or the idea there is that this is a, this is a, this is a Jewish love story unfolding right in front of us the way they used to do it back in the old days, the point the reality of Christ coming to give his children actually points us to this idea that they would do back in Jewish times where a bridegroom, you know, that there was a, the, the father of the, the groom would go and make a deal with the father of the bride, right? And it was arranged. I still think they may need to go back to that arranged marriage. I could probably do that. Um, but the father would go and he would make this deal with the, the bride father and and then he would return home and he and his son, they would make a place that is now going to be, at some point when the place is finished, it will be the son and his new bride. And so they would prepare a place. Does this sound familiar at all? They would prepare a place for when the marriage was ready and the time of the marriage was ready. And then Unbeknownst to the bride, he did not know when the day would happen, when the bridegroom, when the place was finished and it was ready, she did not know when the bridegroom would come and get her. So she had to be ready at all times. She had to keep her stuff somewhat packed. She had to almost like live out of a suitcase, if you will, for a time. And so then what would happen is the bridegroom, when the place was done, and he and his father were done preparing the place where they would live and they would dwell, he would give his men and they would ride in this wedding party. And what would happen is one of his men would sound a trumpet call. Not this one, trumpet, but it would be... I would do that. It was so far. And so they would get, as they got drew close to the bride's place, they would sound the shofar to make this declaration announcement that the wedding day has arrived. Do you guys see this unfolding? Thessalonians, where it says that when the day of the Lord comes and He comes to return, that there will be an hour which we do not know, where the bridegroom will come get His bride and there will be a trumpet sound. And the voice of the archangel will make a declaration that the bridegroom is ready, the place is ready, and we will go and be with Jesus for eternity. And the greater reality in Revelation, it says, the bride has made herself ready, and the bridegroom goes and gets her. So the idea of marriage points us to a greater reality. That is why in our culture that marriage is such under attack. Even Christian marriages, the enemy tries to destroy marriage, the very institution, the very definition of marriage. We see it around us because why? It is a temporary institution that points to a greater spiritual reality. So I'm going to talk for a few minutes. I'm only going to get through half and we'll pick up the next week. The 25 things that I've learned in 25 years of marriage. Number one, marriage isn't about us, it's about Jesus. And I know that people think and they, they, they kind of like get bewildered when you say that, and, uh, but, but it really is, if you look at the biblical narrative, marriage isn't about us, it's not about people. It's 
and, and I'm talking about the, the human side of it. It is about us as the church being the bride. But in Ephesians 5, remember when Paul is talking about marriage and he gets into a lot more detail and he's saying, um, you know, husbands love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for um, wives to make your husbands as unto the Lord. And then he gives these kind of roles. And then he gets to verse 31 and he talks about and he quotes Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined, united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. And then he says, he kind of ends it by saying, verse 32, but I'm speaking to you of a mystery about Christ and the church. And so you're kind of like, what was it? I thought you were just specific. He's talking about marriage, husband and wife, and yes, we find our roles, and yes, we find out how to do marriage, but ultimately he's saying your marriage is a revelation of the gospel. It must, it should be a revelation of the gospel. That is why, again, the enemy hates marriage. Because marriage reminds us of Christ in the church. Paul says, this is a mystery. I've been describing a mystery. This reveals Christ. So it's really not about us. We have a part in it. But it's about Jesus. Marriage is about Jesus. And so, Jesus must be supreme in our marriage. He must be preeminent. Marriage was a sacred gift by God to be done His way. But it's also temporary. We need to understand that it is temporary. Remember Jesus said when the Sadducees were trying to trap Him, you know, there's this guy who was married to this or this uh, lady was, or married, the man married to his wife, and she died, and then there was several, or the man died, and, and, and yes, I get that backwards. I get it lined up in just a second. But anyway, pretend multiple spouses may die. Whose spouse will she be in heaven? And he said, You don't know the scriptures. You won't be given or taken in marriage in heaven. And some of us go, It's kind of sad. Some of us may be more excited about that. But, um, It's temporary. But what has happened in our culture is we have made marriage an idol. We've actually worshipped marriage. And we've made it we've made it an idol instead of treating it as what it should be. And it is, yes, a faithful thing. It should be done rightly. It should be done the way God told us to do it. But ultimately, it should point to the reality of Christ. So that's why when we get to heaven, we won't need marriage because Jesus will be enough. He will satisfy the longing of our heart. So we won't be given in marriage. I have requested that at least my mansion's next door to my wife. Hey, it doesn't hurt to ask, right? We get along down here, so I'm, I'd be okay. But our earthly marriage, we should strive to make Christ the foundation preeminent first so that people see Christ in the church when your marriage points to the reality of Christ. Even when we blow it, we have to forgive each other. It points to the reality of Christ in the church. Number two. That's one of the things I learned. That marriage isn't about us. It's about Jesus. Number two. Putting Jesus at the center of our marriage and home was the greatest decision that we ever made. Now, with that, we have not walked that out perfectly, but we've worked at it. 
as a very initial thing, you know, when we were so, you know, you're, you're young and full of love, and you're like, you know, we're never going to argue, you never going to have that. I, I love that, you know, premarital couples, you know, you do counseling, and we've never had an argument. I don't think we're ever going to have an argument, and I'm just kind of sticker inside. Just wait. You will disagree. And so it's not that we walked it out for good, but we worked at it. But at the very beginning, we said we're going to put Christ first, always. And so we prioritize our relationship with Him. And again, I understand that there's times and seasons of business, but we, we read together, we talked about the Lord together, we made comments about what, what God's doing in our lives together, we prayed together, we continued to try to pray together. And I understand when you have little ones in your family, there's dynamics and there's times and seasons where some of that gets a little strange, but even if it's just a couple of minutes of taking those times to pray together and, 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 and talk about God together. But ultimately, marriage can remind us of how much we need Him, right? But continually making Christ the frame, Lord, we give you our marriage and we, 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 we want to put you as first place in our marriage, but prioritizing Jesus as being the center of that marriage, making Him supreme. Three, allow Jesus to define your relationship, not culture. If we're not careful, culture can teach us and, and, and it's teaching our young people and we have a steady diet of culture, whether it's electronically, on the web, and TV. And we get way too many cues from our culture about how to do relationships and it's not fruitful at all. In fact, it's very damaging. Very damaging. Because what culture has done to marriage is it has removed the sacredness of it. Marriage is a holy sacred thing. And it goes back to God being the creator. And now we have shows like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. That stuff. I, I, I mean, I'm just mind-boggled at the, the kind of stuff that we watch. A guy with 15 different women and by the time, you know, he's going to eliminate one a week and by the time it's over with, he's going to have one that's going to stand and we watch that every week and we watch these relationships. It is such a, such a garbagey thing to a sacred institution. Kids are getting their cues from the Kardashians. If you don't know who that is, Google it. You'll, you'll see. Don't Google it, please. Jersey Shore. The big thing, hooking up. It's all these friends, and they're just picking up with each other, and, 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 and people watch this train wreck happen on TV, and we get our cues from that, and we, then, then what happens is we, when we get our cues from culture, then there's a focus on outward, and what's beautiful, and what looks good, and what's hot, and what's not, and we get our cues from that, and then what it, it begins to develop a discontentment of ourselves and others. Where you see this, you know, this idea of, well, we fell out of love. Well, if you're doing it God's way, that's impossible. Because love is not based on emotions. It's not our feelings. If we went by our feelings, folks, we would be in trouble. All of us. 
allow Jesus to find a relationship, not culture. Because there's going to be days you don't feel it. There's going to be days you have to choose it and to love and to understand who Christ is in me. He needs to be what fulfills me. Number four. Marriage is about death to self, not self-centeredness. There's a guy I knew that was a pastor um, that I know that he... He it's a lot. He pastored a large church, but so he when he did pre-marriage, he would do a lot of couples that were just you know they would kind of do this throughout the year. It was a huge church. Well, his first session of premarital counseling was called "Prepare to Die." Marriage 101: Prepare to Die. Because he kind of tried to demystify and you know the, take the rainbows and unicorns out of this thing. He says, if there's a reality to what you're signing up for, if you're, yes, you'll love, and yes, there are feelings, and we're created, we're emotional beings, and yes, there's all the, there's that fluttery stuff that happens on the inside of us, but it has to move beyond that. And marriage is about death yourself. Because the foundation, even when it says, husbands, love your wives, and in the Greek and Hebrew, there are many different, you know, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but there are many different types of definitions of love in the Bible. The English language kind of almost does damage to the word love because we can love our spouse and, and I could love ice cream when I was talking about that. But hopefully we're not saying it's the same thing. And we're, so we just have this word love. In, 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 in the Greek and Hebrew, Aramaic, they, there was many different words for love. And obviously we know the word agape is self-sacrificial. It's the found it must be the foundational love for everything. It is what makes Christ supreme. Foundational love. Agape. Self-sacrificial love. And when Paul says husband love your wives, he's saying, Husband, agape your wives. Self-sacrificial love. This goes beyond feelings and emotions, and it moves you on that. And so it's about laying your life down. If you've been married at any amount of time, you understand it's death to self. If you want to be happy. It's not about us. When we make it about us, we make it about what's in it for me. Number five. Learn to love the little things in marriage. And hopefully this is helpful if you're planning to get married, if you're single. This, this, this is stuff that I mean, you need to tap through this to you know, your arm or something. Um, chisel it out on the wall or something. But learn to love the little things that matter more than you think. It's those quirky things about each other. Little things that sometimes can tend to get on your nerves, but you would miss it greatly when they were gone, if they were gone. And so learn to love those things little things about each other. They matter more than you think. Number six. Marriage is incredibly hard at times, but it's completely worth it. I'm always amazed, again, and I, and I talk about this in my own premarital classes, that why God would say, you know, it, it is so incredible. The woman and how she's wired, how she sees the world, her perspective, and the man and we're going to take these, and not only do they have different perspectives and they see it in their hardwired differently, but then you take their brokenness and their dysfunction, and now we're going to put them together and make a marriage. I'm like, God, this is insanity or brilliance. I'm not quite sure. But 
here's the thing. Just like how Paul writes, Jesus is saying, with a smile on his face, you can't do it without me. That's the point. It's, it is difficult enough when you belong to God and you're working in marriage. I can't imagine doing it without Christ. If you, want to do, if you want to have a great marriage, you're going to need me to pull it off. So it is incredibly hard sometimes. But it will be completely worth it to keep on keeping on. Number seven. True love is found when you feel love after knowing the other's faults. Isn't it amazing when we go into a relationship that the, we try to cover up all the flaws? Right? You know, that initial attraction, and, and it's trying to always look the best, be the best. You know, like, I don't want them to see any kind of little quirk or, or at least a trunk. The folks that's coming out, I say on your first date, just let it all out. This is who I am. You need to know right away this is who I am. No, we're not going to try to cover it because. It's just bad news when you get down the road, you know, and then you, you know, and, and I tell people, again, when they're about to get married, I said, you're not going to get over every hurdle, but get over as many hurdles as possible. Because there's some people that have been married 10, 15 years, and they always need to talk about this issue before we got married. We've never talked about it. We've never dealt with this before. I think, now, I think that we need to change dating. We need to just come in with a list of 100 things that, um, 100 flaws that I have. And we're going to compare notes. Going to remove emotion right now. Yeah, I think you're good looking, but here's the thing. I deal with this, this, and this. Are you still okay with that? And we're going to find out if we have a second date real quick. But true love is found when you still love each other after knowing the faults. Because again, if you are looking for something perfect, and again, in culture, we create this utopian idea of perfection. And it's always going to let us down. But true love is true marriage. Just, I know your faults and I still love you. I know your faults and I still love you. It points to the greater reality of Jesus. He loves us in our faults, right? He still wooing us. He still desires us. That's why we can't be dictated by shame and condemnation. We just, shame and condemnation pushes us away from Christ. Well, he could never love you. He's, he's behind you saying, who, who told you that? There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Come back over here. I'll, I want to walk with you. Number eight leads us to this. Your spouse isn't Jesus, so don't expect him to be. That's a reality. Sometimes we look to our spouse to be something they could never be. If you are looking for a, in marriage to someone who completes me, you complete me. You better get that out of your mind. Jesus needs to complete me. If you get that figured out, and Jesus is enough, number one, you won't run to marriage for the wrong reasons, because I think Christians get married for the wrong reasons. And if you can get this figured out, especially as a single person, that I, Jesus is enough for me, then if He gives you a spouse, you will actually, if you get that revelation, be a better spouse. It'll be a great spouse. Because you're not going in with all these expectations. Your spouse isn't Jesus. 
if you make them Jesus, and you may not say that out loud, but if you if, if you're looking for them to heal parts of your heart, heal the wounds of your childhood, heal those things, you're going to be greatly disappointed, and you'll be disillusioned. They're not Jesus. We need Jesus. Also, singleness isn't a curse. Some people go into marriage thinking again that they're going to somehow soothe relational pain. So, and then sometimes it's been in the, you know, like the job of the church to matchmake people. If you've done that, please repent. I say that because we used to do kind of goofy things when I was like in college and we thought it was our job. You know, I had, you know, Athena and I dated, you know, so I had an awesome girlfriend and uh, so it was everybody else who was in a dating, great dating relationship is to fix all the people that didn't have a relationship. It was almost like they had some sort of disease and we needed to cure it. So we would do goofy things like go to a restaurant, you know, and, and uh, you know, you have a table and, uh, you know, your idea is you plan this beforehand is to get them to sit next to each other and then we would all excuse ourselves from the table one by one, you know, and then they were just sitting there together and I'm ashamed to say that, but we did that kind of stuff. Because we have treated singleness as a curse. You know, Paul said, Paul is single and he said, I'd rather you live like me. And I know you. I know not everybody's called to that. He said, but some. He said, I'd rather because I, I give my life to the work of the Lord. And if you have a family, you know, whether you know that becomes a part of your priority, which it should. He said, but I've, I've been able to give myself fully and devotedly to the Lord. You're married and, and you have kids, you, and that's right. That's where you minister. He said, I'd rather be, everybody be like me. But he, he was realistic. I, I know that you can't be. And I love Christopher Yuan, who was here a few years ago. You guys know his story came out of the gay lifestyle, and God really set him free. He's HIV positive. And uh, I recently, if you've been on his, if, you're, if you like him on Facebook, he's got a new symbol. And all these symbols that are flying around there, you know, the equal sign for equality, he's at the greater than sign. He said, because I found the one who is greater than marriage and sexuality. And I got my fulfillment in him. I'm like, Number nine, getting your identity in Christ helps you not to look for your identity in your marriage, and it makes you a better spouse. And again, that's a daily individual thing for us to make Christ supreme, and I've kind of touched in on it with you. But getting your identity in Christ helps you not to look for your identity in your marriage. Your marriage, your sexuality, that's why things in culture is you. Your sexuality is not your identity. And we make it such about that because we exalt marriage, we exalt sexuality, and we make it our identity. It's not. We're image bearers of the living God. That is our identity. Number 10. Admitting you are wrong, forgiving quickly, making allowance for each other's faults, and not holding grudges will bring you peace, rest, and freedom from anxiety. Amen. Bless you with that one. Live that. Hold on to that. Don't learn that the hard way. I found out that I can be right and wrong at the same time. How we love each other, how we communicate with each other. I can have right information and I can be a jerk. So then you're, you've won an argument, but you've lost something else. But when you're wrong, admit it. 
we have the hardest time admitting when we're wrong, me included. But when you're wrong, admit it. That's, that's repentance. And then forgive quickly. Don't hold on to that. Make allowance for each other's fault, as Paul tells us. When you do this, I'm telling you, peace, rest, and freedom from anxiety are coming your way. Number 11. The grass is never greener on the other side. Stay on your side of the fence. We are, again, in culture. We have a steady tsunami of discontentment. You need the latest and the greatest of this. You need the, you know, and, and, and we're, we're marketed that way. You know, you, you have to have this. You have to have this. And it can bleed into relationships. That's why culture exalts outward beauty. And again, what we, we take our cues from culture. And it, what it does is it really drives discontentment. And then, you know, you're, you're, you're married for some time. And, and, and again, you can begin to take each other for granted. And then if culture is what you are dieting on, you can begin to grow discontent. And fantasy, thoughts. But the grass is never greener on the other side. It's just a whole other set of dysfunction if you want to trade that one in for another one. I'm, I, I've just seen it. Well, I don't like this stuff, and I'll go to another spouse. Good luck with that. You're going to run into it. And, and I, I found out your issues, and if you're not dealing with your issues, you're still your issues. They're coming. You might, you might change your surroundings a little bit, and that's why, again, people sometimes they move for the wrong reasons or they quit for the wrong reasons, and your issues are coming. And you can maybe get a little bit of retreat from them, but they're coming like a train. And they'll, 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 they'll hit you at some point again. But when we fantasize and we think that it could be better with this or that, grass is never greener. Never. And then that leads me to the last one for today. Get your issues worked out no matter what it takes. Don't continue to drag them with you year after year. They will get heavier and heavier. That's where you need to humble yourself. Get counseling. Talk to someone. Be transparent. That's why we need the body of Christ. That's why we need one another. Because we need to confide in people that love us and will pray for us. A lot of people, we, we get isolated with our issues. We get insulated with our issues. And then what happens, the enemy says, you're the only one dealing with that. And if you start talking to people, especially more mature you, they'll tell you stories of how God brought them through. And, 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 and there, there are older couples here that can mentor you, younger couples, and maybe even reverse mentoring. The older couples, you can probably learn some things from the younger couples. And we need to confide. And, and, and if it takes it, you humble yourself. Because I think a lot of times we go, well, we don't need counseling. We're Christians, and we can just muscle our way through it. Sometimes we need to just humble ourselves and go get help. I'm talking about spiritual health, not just simply psychological health. I'm saying Christian counseling people that will point you in the right direction ultimately point you to Christ. And sometimes that takes humbling ourselves and saying, we need help. We need help. Don't wait too long because, you know, again, those issues just get heavier and heavier as you move along. They don't just go away. That's the conclusion of part one. Next week we'll pick up and do the rest. But we want to close today with communion. Um, 
thought what an awesome, what an awesome way to close here um, with communion in the reality of, again, the of marriage of Christ in the church and what Jesus did, his pursuit of us. And if you're like me, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a staff for romantic things and, you know, people post stuff on, you know, Facebook or, you know, these, these really over-the-top um, proposals. Have you ever seen those? Is it really surprised? It's just so cool, and then it makes me feel like really bad because I didn't do anything like that when I asked my wife to marry me. And, uh, and but it's really, it's really cool. And, and, and I mean, you can bring some of them bring tears to your eyes, and just depending on the story, um, because we're drawn to that. I mean, most of us like those stories because again, what is happening? The reason why it touches our heart is mirrors the whole idea is a point to a greater reality, whether we acknowledge it or not. No matter how big a proposal is on the earth, nothing holds a candle to the proposal that Jesus Christ made to humanity. That was the most over-the-top thing that anyone could imagine. Is that he went to the cross while you were yet sinner Christ died for you. This, and then it says that this is how he demonstrates his love for us. And a lot of these things, these over-the-top, you know, it can be a demonstration of love. But Jesus steps out of heaven, the glory of heaven, becomes a baby, grows up, is, you know, goes through all of the stuff of growing up, becomes one of us, fully God, fully man, and he humbles himself to the point where then he goes to the cross, he's beaten beyond recognition, by his stripes you are healed, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us as a demonstration of his love. Ultimately, this marriage proposal as the bridegroom saying, will you be mine? Will you be mine? Because my Father, we're preparing a place for you, and I want you, where I'm going, I want you to be with me, John 14. Because I'm the bridegroom, and I want you to be with the bride of Christ, the church. So as we take communion today, um, again, letting it point to a greater reality of, of remembering Christ's death. Paul says, when we take communion, we proclaim his death until he returns. So we're proclaiming the proposal of Christ with communion, saying this is the demonstration of love for us. So in a new way, when we take it, we receive him. And again, let your prayer, let your heart be, Lord, I want to make this supreme because it all boils back to God. Be supreme in my heart. Be first, be preeminent, be the chief, be the Lord, be on the throne, and then be on the throne of my marriage, for my kids, and my job, and we're going to get into that in a couple of weeks, but I want you to be supreme everywhere. So let's pray. And Charlie, we'll have to forget to be playing there on. Lord, um, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your demonstration of love. That while we were yet sinners, you died. Lord, when, when we were doing our worst, you were pursuing us. While we were doing our worst, you were pursuing us. While we were running away from you, you were drawing us back and come back. Come to me. Come to me. I have a plan for you. I love you. 
And Lord, I, I, I just ask God that, uh, Lord, as we think today about marriage and this idea of marriage, this earthly institution that you created, God, I pray, Lord, in our hearts that you remind us of you, you remind us of your death, your resurrection, that you came because you wanted us to be with you. I pray that we would make it supreme in all things. So, Lord, as we take this communion, God, may we proclaim your death, may we proclaim your love, proclaim your proposal to the world. And I used to say, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, and he said, This is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. After the supper, he took a cup of wine and he stood up with it. This is representative of a new covenant in God and his people. Jeffrey is blessed by